Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. We help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie Get as much or as little as you need by choosing six to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. This episode is part one of a two-part series on how to get consistent sales, consistent opportunities, basically make a consistent income off your creativity and the two major factors in doing that. We're going to cover the first factor in this episode. Let's go. I have deep, tremendous compassion for you artists out there who are going through the whole feast or famine situation where the opportunities and the energy of your creative career ebbs and flows in these dramatic peaks and valleys and you're kind of getting crushed and your identities warped by you know these tremendous seasons of action followed by these tremendous seasons of drought And I've been there, man. Like the early days of my career, there were these uh, times where things were so slow. I was like a junkie at the slot machines, hitting refresh on my email inbox. Like, please tell me another blog followed my work or, or posted my work, or please tell me I got a new illustration job or whatever. And I know what it's like to ride that wave of inconsistency. And it's so painful, uh, not only financially, but emotionally. It's just a crazy roller coaster to weather. And I just so relate to that. And it's, a, it's such a hard uh, experience. And so I wanted to do an episode about how to get consistent opportunities, consistent action, consistent income that you can actually build a thriving business on. You know, the book Predictable Success by Les McEwen, he says you can't have a successful business without a predictable, consistent market stream that you can rely on, that you can plan for. And so how do you create a thriving creative business that has a consistent market stream? There are two things that you've got to do. If you don't have that, it's a problem either with the work that you're creating or the way that you're marketing it. Now, in this episode, we're going to just talk about the work that you're creating. And so if the work you're creating does not have a clear value proposition that you can consistently deliver on, you can't have a thriving business on a consistent basis. If I asked you what's the value of your work and you go into a bunch of BS and buzzwords and key phrases that uh, ultimately means I don't know why anybody likes what I do or I don't know why anybody would pay for what I do, you're in trouble. If you want consistent income and action in your creative career, you have to have two things. One, you need art that works consistently. What does that mean? It means that it works for your audience. It gives them something they want or need in a deliberate, consistent, and potent way. If you do this, you will attain true fans that rely on you for a particular type of value. This will allow you to build a stable momentum for your business that you can plan for. Art that works is consistent, potent, boiled down, essential value that... Your audience doesn't have to work to find value in. It happens on a visceral, instantaneous level. This makes it like 
creative espresso. So we're gonna call the work the espresso. The second thing you need is good marketing, i.e. the cup you serve the espresso in. You know, everything in your business around the coffee is the cup. That's the marketing, you know, the personal brand, social media, networking. We're gonna talk about that next episode. For now, let's talk about the three steps to crafting your creative espresso, i.e. art that really powerfully works for your audience and ultimately the foundation of a consistent, thriving creative career. Let's go. So the first thing you gotta do is find your beans. Step one is find your beans. Uh, (laughs) Please, somebody isolate me saying, find your beans and turn it into some crazy rave song. Uh, But yeah, the first thing you gotta do is find your beans. You gotta know what you're working with in order to provide the kind of value that you can build a creative career on. I once heard BJ Novak, AKA Ryan the Temp from The Office, he was a writer on The Office, embarrassingly admit that he drinks Starbucks coffee every day. And he said, it's not because I think Starbucks are the best, it's because I believe that they are incredibly consistent in their offering. And he said that he knows how much caffeine uh, X drink from Starbucks provides, and within his daily routine, in his work week, he can rely on them to provide that very specific, consistent value, and that's why they get his business. The same goes for your creative career. I don't know if you know this, but your favorite artist that you follow long-term, be it music, stand-up comedy, or music, are often the ones, not the ones that are the most brilliant, but the ones that consistently provide a very specific value that you can rely on. For me, an example is Tycho. Uh, This is kind of a cliche, I think, by now in terms of designers. Uh, I think designers follow this band like, I don't know what like, like like Elvis fans followed Elvis. I don't know. But Tycho is a band, T-Y-C-H-O, if you don't know, if you're not a designer. Tycho was a designer who became a music sensation. He makes instrumental music. His name's Scott Hansen. I actually followed him back in the day when he was just doing design, and actually he had some of his music playing when you entered his portfolio site. That's how old it was. Um, and his, his design is really incredible, but his music is so reliably consistent for good instrumental morning work music. And when he drops an album, I know for the next six months I'm set for that that thing, that need that I have. I have to fill that space somehow. And when he doesn't have a new album and I've overplayed it, I have to search and find and make my own playlists and all this kind of stuff. Dave Chappelle is another example of somebody who shows up consistently with, if he has a comedy special, I know it's gonna give me the kind of laughs that are thoughtful, that make me think about things, that make me uh, progress my mindset, and ultimately make me cry with laughter. I know I can rely on Dave. That's why he's one of my all-time favorites. Now, the way that you provide consistent value is to understand what you really sell. I don't know if you know this, but Howard Schultz, who's kind of considered to be the founder of Starbucks, he didn't actually create Starbucks. There were two Starbucks stores before him in Seattle, and they just sold the roasted beans. And he fell in love with the coffee, and he thought it was brilliant, but they weren't growing at a rapid pace until Howard Schultz was on board. And the way that he took it to the next level was he realized that they weren't selling coffee. They weren't, nobody needs coffee. They need the buzz that they get from coffee. That's what they were really selling. It was the buzz. And so in the same way, you're not selling music. You're not selling art. You're not selling writing. You're not selling film. You're selling what it does for your audience. And if you don't know what it does, you can't hit that bullseye. And so you gotta get really clear on what is the value that I wanna provide. 
We've talked about this idea a few times in the podcast, but I want to start with this as a foundation and then get more granular with it and get more tactical with it uh, in a second. But we're going to start with that idea from the personal MBA, Josh Kaufman's book, where he talks about the Harvard study where they study the five core human drives. So there's five drives that your business can show up and speak to and essentially uh, satisfy for your customers. There, here they are. Feel, and I've memorized them. I've committed them to memory because I try to include them in every episode of the podcast. I try to include them deliberately, either one or two of them in every illustration that I make. And I know that this sounds really esoteric. I know it sounds like um, big picture and sometimes it's easy for us to ignore the big picture because it's hard to grapple with. But I promise you, if you will take the time to grapple with these ideas and really understand what beans you're trying to provide, you will be able to do it in a consistent basis. You know, is this an Ethiopian bean? Is it a Sumatra bean? What do you got here? Because de that depends on how you grind it and how you roast it. And we're going to get to those things in a second. But here they are. Number one, feelings. People will buy feelings. If you can create a product or a service that makes people feel stuff on demand, people will buy the heck out of that product because people need and want to feel things. The second thing is learning. People are naturally inclined to learn over their lifetime to some degree. It doesn't even have to be useful learning. It can just be novel learning. We like the experience of learning something. The second one is collecting. We're hoarders. We're collectors. We like to store up for tomorrow. We like to decorate our space. We are natural collectors. Number four is bonding. We need connection with other humans. We need connection with animals. We need, we're desperate for connection. And if you create a service or a a product that helps us feel more seen and connected with our community and with other people, people will buy it. Five, protecting. People want to protect what they already have. If you offer something where they get to protect things they love, they protect their health, they protect themselves, they protect uh, people that they care about, you know, advocacy, social justice, that is a very clear type of value that humans need and want and will purchase on a regular basis. So here's what I recommend you do. I recommend you take these five and put them in order based on the resonance for you, based on what you would like to provide for. Go back to episode 229 where we talk about taste. I think you got to lead with taste, your own sensitivity to those things. For me, I'm I'm especially sensitive to feeling. I love experiences where I'm feeling. I like to feel melancholy. I like to feel exuberant joy. I like the whole spectrum of emotion. And I love creative stuff. I love art that makes me feel something. I love watching a movie where I don't have to make any effort, but on a visceral level, I'm manipulated like a chemical combustion in my mind to feel something, to have tears in my eyes, to laugh out loud. I love that visceral audible response that's produced in me effortlessly. I will pay so much money consistently for that experience. And so for me, that's number one on my list. I want to learn how do I show up and make people feel stuff with my work. And I'm going to lead with that. The second one I'm going to go with is bonding. I, I'm so obsessed with human connection. You know, there's this... I, I feel like because of our ego, we have this thing in our brain that tells us we're us and they're them. It's the thing that kind of keeps us safe. It's the thing within a, a the nucleus within a cell that makes it uh, survive and do its function that, that keeps it separate from the other cells, that sees it as not connected to the other parts of the body. And uh, although I think that's really useful, it's also really sad because we live our lives in this isolation in our own human experience. You know, when I was a kid, I was really obsessed with these weird esoteric ideas of like, it blew my mind to think my brother, my older brother, Josh sees everything from his perspective. Like in his mind, life is his story and I will never experience what it's like. It, it just like 
It was soul crushing and mind blowing at the same time to think like, I will never experience life from his perspective. He will never experience it from mine. And so I love art because when someone truly expresses themselves and truly expresses what it feels like to be a human and especially a particular type of human that I really relate to, I feel seen, I feel connected, I don't feel isolated within my ego, I am in touch with the oneness of humanity that we are inextricably connected. I love that and I wanna create art around that. So you can continue to order those through and just do it based on your own personal taste. This idea that you start with your own sensitivity, You, when you're digesting life experiences, when you're digesting art, it's like having a meal. And if you, if you have a sensitivity, if you have taste buds for this particular type of value, you'll be able to reverse engineer the recipe of saying, ooh, this pairs well with that. I like tarragon mixed with thyme. Like there's something really tasty about that that produces this feeling or this learning or this bonding or this protecting uh, or this collecting. Like it's some, ooh, that really satiates, that really satisfies that uh, taste, that hunger, that drive that I have. And you'll be able to reverse engineer the recipe. And then if you really have that nuance palette or you develop that nuance palette, you'll say, yes, the tarragon and the thyme pair deliciously, but it needs a little turmeric. And that's your creation. You're saying, you know what? 10 years ago, I was really satiated. <laughs> you ever say that to people just in passing? Man, 10 years, I was, 10 years ago, I was so satiated, but now I'm not. I really hope satiated is a word. The more I say it, the more it sounds strange. But uh, 10 years ago, there was probably art that you were consuming that was really satisfying that human drive that you have on one of these areas. And it's not being satisfied anymore. It's not, there's either a, you know, the, the recipe's gone stale or it's been out overplayed. And now you need to be the person providing and delivering upon this type of value. You need to decide what it is, and then we're gonna talk about uh, how to do it systematically like a science. Let's do number two. So the second thing you've gotta do is you've gotta make it potent by grinding your beans. First, you got to find your beans. Then you got to grind your beans naturally, right? Like if your artwork isn't potent enough, if you make people work for the good stuff, they're not going to show up consistently. You know, have you ever watched a movie and it's just so, you can't suspend your disbelief. You can't get immersed in the experience. You have to work to feel something. You really have to, you know, try to feel something. That's one of the worst experiences in creativity. When it comes to identifying your true taste, I really, in, I invite you <laughs> to experience and, and identify what are the creative things that viscerally get me where I don't have a choice whether it's guilty pleasures, I don't care. What are the things where they get you on a visceral level, whether you like it or not? That's your true taste. That's your true palate. That's the true value that you need to show up and provide. In the same way, you need to be providing such a potent offering that peep, that your audience, your people, your true fans, they don't have a choice to decide whether they like your thing, it just works for them every time really quickly and uh, intentionally like an espresso, right? So you gotta have that potency. And back to Howard Schultz, uh, who we consider to be the founder of the Starbucks we know today. I was gonna say that we know and love today, but that's more complicated, isn't it? <laughs> we, we have a complicated relationship with this corporate juggernaut, but but uh, Howard Schultz, one, the inflection point for that company came when he had visited Italy and he had seen the coffee shops there and he realized, yes, we are not selling coffee, we're selling the buzz that you get from coffee, but not just the buzz uh, like caffeine, but the buzz of the 
experience, the ambiance of a coffee shop, a community of people that show up on a regular basis and they have the, you know, the artistry and the, and the sound, the musicality of people making espresso in real time and drinking it together and speaking and the, that whole buzz, that's what they were selling. And at the time, Starbucks was only selling the roasted beans. So they didn't have any of it. They were, they were, they, you know, they were giving the buzz to them, but it was in such a, they were making people work for it. And so they, Howard decided he was going to create an, uh, within the store, a place that you could buy espresso and sit down and experience the entire buzz of a coffee shop. And, and so in the same way, are you making people chew on your coffee beans. I don't know if you've ever done this or not. Have you ever smelt? <laughs> I don't know if that's the right uh, past tense. Smelled? Have you ever smelled a, have you ever, sm- I'm going to go with smelt because it's. I like it better. Have you ever smelt a coffee bean and it smelled so delicious that you're like, you know what? I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I I don't think anybody, uh, I don't think anybody's watching. So I'm just going to pop a few of these bad boys into my mouth and you pop those roasted coffee beans in your mouth that smelled so delicious and they're just disgusting. You chew it up and you have like coffee grounds in your mouth for weeks at a time and you can't get the taste out. And you're like, oh, it smelled so good. Why was It's like a some kind of animal in the wild that smells sweet, uh, but ultimately it's a defense mechanism that kills you. That's what t- chewing up coffee beans is like. And if you are only providing a vague sense of feeling, learning, bonding, collecting, or protecting, you are making people chew up your beans and you're not getting the maximum from the potency of your offering. And so what you gotta do next is you gotta grind down from these five human drives that you're speaking to, you've gotta grind down to much more specific types of value that you wanna provide. Because when you do that, and in step three we're gonna talk about when you know on a granular level what you're providing, you can cook it in the right way. You can cook it as a science and you can create a chemical combustion within your audience that they will re- they will come back for over and over and over. But it starts with grinding it down. We gotta figure out what do we, we're not serving, here's the thing, we're not using a French press, we're not using filter coffee machine. We, I'm not talking about like a, you know, like a that kind of grit. I'm talking about almost powdery type of coffee. Let's get down to the nitty gritty, even grittier than grit. I'm talking powder. Uh, how do we get that kind of potency? Here's what you got to do. This is what I've been doing recently. I made this connection. It's not an obvious connection. It's actually um, something that I kind of, uh, I, I connected the dots here. So you, we have the five types of value from the personal MBA. The next thing you want to do is go to that Bain & Company, 30 Elements of Value. It'll be in the show notes. You can go find it on the internet. And uh, this isn't a direct correlation, but I think within these 30 Elements of Value, you're getting a more granular look at the types of value that you can provide as a business. If you open that up, you're going to see a pyramid. And it's kind of, uh, it goes from the bottom, which are like the easiest to provide as a business and the more simple types of value all the way up to the life-changing values, things like self-transcendence, meaning, like I said, bonding with other people, like getting ego death, getting beyond yourself, seeing the connection beyond self, self self-transcendence that I love trying to provide creativity on that level. I, you know, I've thought a lot about how if you will, like an artist's, one of the jobs of the artist is to self-actualize beyond uh, the average person. Like, part of our job is to use our work as a shovel to dig into our psyche and understand ourselves better than an average person does. And if you do that, if you find, if you observe things that other people don't see and you unearth who we are as a society, what it means to be a person in your particular culture, in your particular time, with your particular neurobiology, if you start to, and experiences, if you really start to unearth that and be able to articulate that in such a way that it resonates, then you're going to show people a mirror. 
You're going to be able to show people. You're going to be able to help people self-actualize in a consistent, potent way that they couldn't do on their own. They don't have time to unearth and they don't have skill to unearth in the same way that you do. You get to be a leader in that way. And I love engaging with an album that tells me things about my human experience that I didn't even realize or I didn't have words for or I couldn't feel. And it reminds me what's important. It reminds me of what's, uh, what life is about. And it becomes what I call shorthand for my identity formation. If I say, you want to know who I am? Uh, listen to Sufjan Stevens' Carrie and Lowell. And I'm a, that's, that's one of my records that I see as shorthand for my identity because it's really about Sufjan's mom who left him when he was little and he grew up without his mom and he's a mama's boy and all of the heartfelt uh, struggle and pain that came through that even into his adult life. And I so relate to so much of the different poetic ways that he articulates that struggle. And it really told me things about my life that I never realized. And, I, and it's and something I use as shorthand for my identity. If you want to know more about me, go dive deep into that album. And you'll get, a, you'll get an idea of, of who I am in, in one way or another. And so that, that's part of providing value on a granular level. Can you provide self-transcendence? Can you help them break through their ego and connect with other people? Can you also, on a, uh, there's another one a little bit further down on that pyramid where you're providing self-actualization. You're helping them realize who they are as a person. Uh, there's motivation. There's providing hope. There's all these different granular levels of value. And when you really create, you know, the target is the bean. We're like, here's the general direction of the value that I want to shoot for. The grinding it down means identifying a very clear bullseye. And when you have that bullseye, you can practice. You can do target practice. You can do technique. You can research. How does one hit a particular bullseye in a very clear way and potent way. And so I think you should go through that pyramid. Don't see it as the end all be all, uh, you know, start there, let it be a springboard for you to start thinking about what do I love art to do within me? What do I wish there was more of, uh, art doing like, for instance, right now I'm thinking a lot about kids media, thinking about how, uh, I was a real weird kid even as a young kid, and there's not a lot of weird kids media for like under 10-year-olds or especially under 5-year-olds. You know, when I was a kid, we had things like the Muppets and things like uh, Fraggle Rock and, you know, in other cultures, they had things like Moomin and, you know, Hayao Miyazaki, all that stuff, all that came, you know, 80s, uh, early 90s. There was a real sense of strangeness. Now, most of the media for kids that age is very order Muppet, not very chaos Muppet, if you will, if you remember me talking about that back in the day. But this idea that, you know, this kid's media is all about learning. It's all about order. It's all about structure. And uh, it's and it, I have a feeling that there are a lot of kids that feel misunderstood. My youngest actually has to go to different cultures and scour the earth. She's a four-year-old scouring the earth for media that satisfies her. Not really, but she... But she does. She has to look to the past and she has to look to old other cultures. You know, she loves Totoro. She loves Moomin. She loves the Muppets. She loves Fraggle Rocks. You know, she, and just naturally, I didn't, I tried to sell this stuff to my older two kids. They weren't interested. <laughs> they like it, but not, not saying like they don't need it. They don't need that type of potent value that makes them feel seen and understood. And when I was a kid, I needed the, the reason I'm so obsessed with Jim Henson and the Muppets is because it made me feel seen when I was a kid. You know, Charlie Brown, the other thing, we don't have a lot of uh, stuff that provides that melancholy for kids anymore. You know, I was in a way, I was a very exuberant goofball kid and I loved the weird stuff, but I also had a real sadness. I think a lot of that had to do with um, not feeling like I fit in my family, feeling alienated, uh, feeling like, you know, missing my mom who I really related to, who was never around. And I think that although I had that exuberant weird side that was goofy and, and liked humor, I also had this very clear melancholy side. And I also think that 
melancholy is a, I do a lot of stuff in kids media. A lot of my work is in that space. And uh, I, th- I want to provide sad stuff for kids. That seems like such a weird goal for a human, but I do. You know, I remember watching Charlie Brown uh, Christmas where they have the sad jazz music and he's all depressed about uh, the commoditization commodification of Christmas and it's depressing him. He even uses the word depressed. There's that sad jazz and man, I would watch that and I didn't even know it was happening but just viscerally feel like, oh, this is medicine to my five-year-old soul. And so that's something that we I used to be satiated on, but we're not doing it for the current culture. And it's my job to reverse engineer that, add my own flavors that freshen up these tastes and to provide that kind of value on a consistent basis. And so you go through there, you figure out which type, you know, is it learning uh, that you want to provide? Like how do you, what kind of learning, technical learning, go and then go see on a granular level in the Bain and Company's 30 Elements of Value, the exact particular bullseye you would like to hit. And that will give you the roadmap you need to know on a scientific level how to provide that for your audience. And that's where we're gonna go to next. last thing you got to do is you got to cook them beans. And I like to think of it as cooking your audience's beans. It sounds weirder that way, which does it for me as I have a strong taste for the strange. But you got to cook them beans and you got to do it right. You know, you can have the perfect selected bean sourced from the finest fair trade land, uh, fair trade thing. I don't currently don't know what fair trade is. I do know what fair trade is. Thank you, Coldplay, circa 1999. And that's why I only want to buy beans from fair trade. Anyway, that's not what this episode is about. Here's what this this part is about. You can source the best beans in the world. You can grind them down to the most potent powder. But if you use the wrong temperature of water, if you use the wrong process, you don't get the right level of pressure, you're going to have a lackluster espresso. Come on, friend. You don't want to serve that garbage. You don't want to serve burnt coffee. Nobody wants that junk, right? How do you do it? You know, some people might think cooking espresso is an art. And yeah, I do think there's an art to it. There's a flair to it. You got to bring your whole passionate, you know, zesty self, but it's as much of an art it is a science and i would believe that the same thing is true for creativity look there's lots been said on the artistic side of creativity like i think uh we have really gone to the ends of earth ends, ends of the earth to talk about the art of creativity and i'm down for that you know i am you know i'm a Frickin' weirdo who loves the mystical, strange, muse, light bulb moments where there's weird things firing off. And you can't make creative stuff without that juice, right? You've got to have those serendipitous occasions where these little things connect in all these interesting ways. And there's a happy accident and, and you don't even, I don't even know how this happened and that showed up. Like, yes, I'm down for that. I'm not going to downgrade that. You're always going to have to have new variables that are unexpected and novel. But the reason why I'm not going to go there right now is because I'm guessing if you're an artist, you're already sold to that. You already That's what you love. You love the magic of creativity. And the other reason I'm not going to ju- dive into that is because that's... That's your personal journey. You've got to experience that. You've got to go through that process. And there's no guidelines or rules to make it happen. It's just about you working it out in the work. And then the other reason I'm not interested in going into the art of art is because so much, res- so many resources have done that over time. And I actually think we've fallen off the, s- the horse on the side of the art. We've fallen off the tightrope on the left side, the artistic side, the art of creativity. And we've not played very much mind to the very real science of creativity. And I would say more often than not, if your work isn't working, if it's not consistently providing potent power for your audience, it's probably something wrong with the science of your creativity. 
And so the third thing you've got to do is you've got to get not only granular, you've got to get scientific about creating chemical combustion in the neurobiology of your audience's brain. You've got to really show up and cook them beans with precision. How do you do that? You do that by collecting a utility belt of devices to cook those beans the proper way. You can't cook a Sumatra bean the way that you cook an Ethiopian. Come on, man. We're better than that. You can't make someone feel something in the same way you make them learn something. You can't make them feel hope in the same way that you make them laugh. They're different chemical combustions. And the fact of the matter is, although uh, we need fresh offerings, that's what I actually think uh, You know, the novel side of creativity is all about. So in the future, I want to kind of dive into this idea of copyright because I have a lot of unusual ideas about copyright and what it means to make original work, why we need original work, and also why we don't. Uh, but ultimately, there's this definition of creativity. I don't think it's the end-all be-all, but I think it's a good working definition for this discussion. It's that creativity is something that is both novel and useful. Now, when we go into the whole idea of the magic of creativity, the art of creativity, I think we're really talking about the novelty. And ultimately, originality and novelty, I think what they're good for is that they taste fresh. Like, uh, you know, with the first time you heard someone talking about authenticity, you're probably like, oh, yeah, that's the good stuff. But the 85,000th time that you heard them talk about authenticity, you're like, what does that even mean anymore, man? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, words lose their saltiness. The ideas, methods lose their saltiness. These uh, guidelines that I'm about to tell you, they don't work without a fresh take. They don't work without providing your own slant, your own palette, your own experiences to them. That's the novel side, a fresh word on or a fresh use of these things. But the useful side, you know, I can sit here, the novel side, I can sit here and say, potato gun, garbanzo bean, endoplasmic reticulum. Yes, they're novel. Where did they come from? Nobody knows the dark crevices of my neurobiology, but they're not useful and therefore they're not truly creative. They're unusual. But what about usefulness? That's a part of creativity. And the only way that maybe those three words were useful is if they provided some kind of <laughs> potent reaction within you. They did something for you. They worked for you. That's the useful side of creativity. And if you want to maximize your potential for usefulness, you know, one of the things I've learned is I've tried to collect as many tricks in my utility belt, as many chemical combustions, uh, as much science in my art and I try to lead with those things, whether I'm doing an interview on a podcast or for a magazine or whether I'm making an illustration or a mural or I'm doing a, a podcast like this one, I try to incorporate these scientific chemical combustions that provide undeniable value that I know if I embed these processes in my work, there will be a visceral, tangible result in my audience. Here's what I mean by that. I'm going to give you some examples of some tricks in my utility belt. I actually feel I like to find things to share with you that make me kind of uncomfortable, like I'm giving away the farm, <laughs> like where I'm giving away the good. That's how I know I'm giving away the good stuff. If I'm feeling like, should I tell them this? Um, so that's what these are. And I'm excited to share them with you. Uh, but these are my utility belt. They're not necessarily going to be your utility belt. You might put some of these things in there, but the point of this isn't to say, here's all the scientific uh, hacks of making great creative espresso. It's more just saying, here's, uh, here's my examples that you can help fine tune your metal detector in your brain to find the type of gold that you're looking for, to find the types of methods that help produce the types of value that you want to produce. And it'll kind of attune and turn on and help you tune into as you're listening to this podcast, as you're listening to other podcasts, as you're reading books on creativity and reading interviews. You know, a lot of these came from interviews or, uh, you know, 
classes or whatever, and I've collected them over time. And so hopefully it's not so much that I'm fishing for you, but I'm teaching you how to fish. I'm teaching you how to recognize these things and take note when you find them and like obsessively collect them so that you can create these chemical combustions in your creative work. Let's go through a handful of them right now. Number one, analogies. Obviously, you know I'm crazy about analogy. You know, the, the, the artistic side is poetry. The, the kind of scientific side is analogy where we're talking about uh, learning on this podcast or, or in my illustrations. I use a lot of analogies. And the reason I do, I didn't know this. I knew that they worked and I knew that I thought in them and I knew that they uh, helped me in my regular life communicate. Like because I feel, because I have ADHD and my, I'm not a neurotypical person, uh, I often felt like I had to explain myself. I had to say, this is what it's like to be me. Like this thing that's normal for you or easy for you, this is why it's hard for me. And I would naturally gravitate towards explaining things in analogy because I noticed, I could see viscerally on people's faces that in a second, in a moment, they would have an aha moment. And I would be like, yeah, baby, like that's what I'm trying to say. And I'm actually addicted to providing that type of value. I love using analogies because I, you can feel and hear on a visceral level the instance when they get that aha moment. It's so addicting to me. I love, that's why I love public speaking. I love to get up in front of people and, and share mostly analogies and stories and watch people understand me, understand concepts, understand things about themselves. I love to see it on their faces. Just, it's not unlike a laugh. You know, uh, it, sometimes you can well up with feeling with the right analogy or you can have that instantaneous moment of delight with the right analogy. And the reason is, I found out later from listening to a neuroscientist talk about it, is that an analogy, what it does, when you tell someone something completely new without relating it to anything that they've ever heard before, you're basically trying to send a car down a highway that you're building at the same time. And it's messy and it's, it takes a lot of energy from the user, you're making those people work for the thing. But when you use an analogy, you're saying, you know that old thing you know? This is just like that. And the old thing they know is a, high, a pre-existing neuro pathway in their mind and you're sending a new car down an old highway and it creates this moment of elation. And I'm so obsessed with that. And, the, and I would not have this podcast if it wasn't for, and I wouldn't be a public speaker if it wasn't for Frank Camaro. He is a public speaker and designer, really brilliant person. You should definitely check him out. I'm going to put an article that he wrote back in 2011 in the show notes of this episode. This article changed the course of my life because although I have always naturally spoken and thought in an analogy and explained myself in an analogy, I hadn't made the leap to use this as part of my creative utility belt. And it wasn't until I read Frank's definition of an analogy. He didn't even call it an analogy. I didn't even know that's what it was at the time. Uh, but he explained it in such simple words with such uh, clarity and, and instruction that I used this idea in a talk that I did shortly after reading this, I was actually researching how to make great talks uh, at the time, and I came across this article from him who I was already a fan of and already a fan of his talks, uh, and this directly impacted my use of analogy in the next talk I did, and the next talk I did was the reason I started the podcast, and it was the reason I became a public speaker. And so thank you, Frank, if somehow you're listening to this. But here's what he said about analogies. He said, search for examples that are outside the purview of everyone in the audience. Novelty wins. We just spoke about that. So start somewhere unexpected and figure out a way to navigate through your topic, toward your topic. For example, last week I gave a talk at Build about screens, but started with the composition of aspirin pills. And in your search, look for common verbs with different nouns. This, that's a, what a freaking brilliant explanation of how to find and develop analogies. Find I forgot about this until I revisit it, and I'm like, oh, man, giving me the freaking good stuff. That's the visceral stuff. I just learned something. That's real value. No wonder Frank is a freaking uh, superstar, right? Uh, someone who I, I definitely want to learn from on, on providing consistent value and, and, and all that good stuff. But he said, when you're looking for them, look for common verbs in, with different nouns. 
you know, different things that, ha- that, and I actually do that. Uh, I did that intuitively when I'm trying to find analogies for this podcast or for my illustration. In the case of technology and aspirin, both are getting smaller yet have limits to their minimum size because of what we can grasp. Of course, of course, novel examples require hunting. Lucky us, that process is fun, and I could not agree more with Frank. I love this this creative process. It's not like it's not unlike poetry, you know. Finding um, you know examples of what you're saying through different metaphors and um, different uh, nouns with the same verbs, and he's saying there that you know with aspirin. We can make it smaller and smaller and smaller, but at some point it can't get any smaller, even if we can make it smaller, because we can't hold it. And the same goes for the screens that we use. Like we could make these screens smaller and smaller and smaller, but at some point um, they're too small for us to use, even if the technology can go there on a nano level. Okay, that's an example of mine. I've gone to use analogies as a a potent way of producing results on a scientific level, creating a chemical combustion, a visceral feeling and experience and value in my in my audience. Now let's go through a few more. There's uh, Dan Harmon's writing circle. Uh, so in screenwriting and creative writing, you're probably familiar with The Hero's Journey. I've talked about it a jillion times on this show. Uh, Christopher Vogler actually popularized a more boiled down version of that in his book, The Writer's Journey. I've been working my way through that book where he takes Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey, which is basically a story structure, a mythological story structure that repeats in all stories of all time in terms of history. Um and then Christopher Vogler took that and created a writing tool out of it with the writer's journey. And then Dan Harmon, who was the creator and writer for Community and Rick and Morty, took that version and boiled it down even more to essential essence. And it's Dan Harmon's circle, uh, story structure circle. Go check it out. This is another one of those things where I'm like, I really don't want to tell you about it. It's too good. Um, but I'm that, um, that's my worst nature. That's my ego that says I'm separate from you, but me and you were one and you winning means I'm winning. So I'm giving it to you. Uh, and, and here's why story structure like that's so powerful in my opinion. Now, again, it's not the end all be all you, if you're going to have a novel approach, if you're going to really, uh, have a fresh take that tastes delicious in a totally new way, you're going to have to break this circle. You're going to have to wrestle with it. You're going to have to do totally new things that haven't been done with it, but you should understand it. And the reason why is again, going back to a scientific level. I believe that the reason why the hero's journey shows up in all cultures of all times isn't maybe maybe there's a mystical side to that but i think ultimately there's a scientific side is that this story structure is the way that our brain makes sense of reality i don't know if you know this but you are not one thing you are a conglomeration of a conflagellation i don't know of that word but it sounded like close to what i was trying to vibe out uh, you're a bunch of stuff you know, like a tissue is like <laughs> a tissue is uh, made up of smaller parts, right? There's this phenomenon in the universe known as emergence, and it's the idea that several atoms coming together, or sub several subatomic particles coming together, create an atom. These l- disparate pieces turn into one bigger thing. It's kind of a mystery, right? Like uh, they give over part of themselves to become one with something else and become something greater. And so in that same way, atoms come together to create molecules, molecules come together to create whatever's next and then build some of that together. And you got uh, cells and then you put the cells together to get tissue and the tissues come together to create organs and the organs come together to create you, right? Now you have the sense that you're not a bunch of different things. You have the sense that you're one thing. You don't feel like you're billions of neurons in your brain. You feel like you're one thing. And that's emergence. And that's the only way that scientists have been able to understand consciousness, to understand your sense of self, is that how do we feel like one thing? Well, all these neurons come together and there's some kind of bond. I read this somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but it's this idea that there's two basic fundamental building blocks of reality, and it's math and story. And story 
and story structure is so uh, integral to the way that we understand our human experience because it is our sense of self. The emergent phenomenon that happens when neurons come together, the way that they see themselves as one thing is the story that you're telling yourself in your mind. You are a story. Apart from a story, you can't understand being a being. And so in that way, I believe that Dan Harmon's circle, Christopher Vogler's circle, uh, story structure, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, that's not something that was invented uh, that just happens to make a good story. I believe it is a roadmap. It's the closest we've got to mapping out how we perceive what it means to exist because we are stories. It's a mirror. It tells us this is how we understand reality. If you go tell a story of something that happened in your life, you're going to start with, uh, I was in my ordinary life, like a regular day, and then this thing happened when I wanted something. And so I went, I left my ordinary space into an extraordinary space to go through trials to get the thing that I wanted. And that's the beginning of these story structures. And so the reason why these structures show up all over the way, all over the place, the reason these tools are so powerful for writing good stories is because of the emergence phenomenon, because of the chemical combustion that happens in your brain. All right, another one. So uh, is the fact that understanding that jokes are a surprise on a neurological level. And I heard Pete Holmes on the You Made It Weird podcast talk about how uh, you know, the reason we laugh as humans, we evolved to laugh to diffuse possible, possibly dangerous situations that ended up being safe. And so if you were hunting in the woods and you're, and you're trying to get your game and you accidentally bump into someone from your tribe, initially you're going to be like, oh crap, and almost like uh, bow and arrow someone to the face. And you turn around and it's actually just Joe. And you're like, oh, hey, Joe. <laughs> I was scared for a minute. But now that I turn around and saw that it was you, Joe, we both laugh as a way of diffusing the tension. You know, in uh, Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, she talks about the, uh, the role of the comic is to create tension and then relieve it. And that is, that's what a joke is. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite, I feel like one-liner comics are uh, a master class in joke telling. Not everybody can pull off one-liners, but Jimmy Carr and Mitch Hedberg are you know, known for their one-liners. Mitch Hedberg, rest in peace. I got to see him, and I'm just bragging right now. I got to see him before he passed away. Uh, when I was in high school, and he was my one of my all-time favorites. He just basically stands up there and with his own voice goes through these one-liners, and one of my favorites of his that's just ultimately just a surprise, uh, you know, leading you one way and creating that tension and then relieving it in an unexpected, surprising way, and that produces a chemical combustion within us that makes us laugh. And uh, one of my favorites is, he says, I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to, too. And so that's just a surprise, is that I used to do drugs. Makes you think you know the path you're going down. He's about to tell you how he used to do them, but he got off of them and and whatever. Uh, But he said something that is equally true, but completely unexpected. I used to do drugs, but I, (laughs) I still do, but I used to, too. And so that's the idea of a joke. Understanding the dynamics and the science behind what a joke is means that you can actually systematically show up and hit that bullseye. Just a few more real quick. Contrast. That's, that contrast creates drama. Whether it's in music or an image, contrast creates drama in our minds, right? So the idea that uh, something that goes really quiet and then suddenly goes boom, like that's a drop in music. That's why it creates drama. That's why it gets an emotional response within us, especially if it's unexpected. One of the things I love, I've been listening to Joan C., his song, he's the guy from Seeger Ross. He, uh, he has a song for the new How to Train Your Dragon movie. This is what I do with my life, okay? I've got three children. I watch a lot of kids' movies, and I also make kids' media, and secretly kids' movies are my favorite movies, especially really good ones that that really use that uh, story structure in, in novel but useful ways. 
But uh, How to Train Your Dragon 3, oh man, tear, tear jerker. I'm not going to give any spoilers away. I know all of you guys are racing out to go see How to Train Your Dragon 3. Anyway, there's a song by Jonesy in that. And one of the things I love about it is that uh, leading up to the first chorus, there's this like, I don't know if it's drums or synth or something, but it has this building sound that's like shh. And it, at the first time it doesn't, nothing happens after it. And it just creates this kind of letdown, like an anticipation where you're like, oh man, I really wanted something big to happen after that. And then the second verse does the same thing, but nothing happens. You think it's leading to somewhere, but nothing, it's just an open-ended part of the equation leading up to the bridge of the song where it goes, and that's where all this cool stuff breaks into life and there's this electronica going on and I'm like, oh gosh, I'm crying because I love it so much. I love when songs do that and they, they're manipulating me with contrast, okay? Another thing you can do, focal point. This is a design principle 101. Focal points are made in an image, in a song, in a grocery store by creating a pattern and then breaking the pattern. So uh, Seth Godin in his TED Talk talks about silk almond milk, how it became such a bestseller. You see, they were selling silk almond milk milk on the shelf uh, because it doesn't need to be refrigerated like normal milk, and they weren't selling. And they didn't start selling until they put it in the refrigerator with other milk. And the reason it worked, in my opinion, is because it was a focal point. Seth Godin talks about how it stood out, but I think it's just as interesting to think about how it had to fit in before it stood out. It had to be part of the pattern in one way, but be totally breaking the pattern in another way. And he says that it was milk, milk, not milk, milk. That breaking of the pattern creates that focal point, and it's why we know about silk, silk milk today. Two more real super quick. Gestalt design principles, uh, things like interesting uses of, you know, using negative space as well as positive space, how we, we group visually group smaller pieces that are in close proximity as a bigger thing. Again, back to emergence, like you can use a bunch of different dots and actually leave out the lines. And if they're close enough in proximity, we will read them together. We'll connect the dots in our mind and you can use that for delight unexpected, um, you know, puzzle pieces that provide that kind of instantaneous moment within somebody. I really like the kind of gestalt where you're taking similar shapes of different objects and mashing them together. I do that a lot in my work. You know, I'll make a bird that's also a pencil. Uh, someone who does this to incredible mastery, uh, master, masterful levels of uh, success is Ali Moss. I'm going to put this in the show notes, his Star Wars posters that have been ripped off a jillion times. Why? Because he's providing the good stuff. I can tell you one thing about Ali Moss, the illustrator. He's not having to worry about consistent levels of success because of his ability to create scientific levels of combustible combustion in his audience. So his Star Wars puzzles, puzzles, <laughs> too excited star wars pictures posters was uh, these these uh, they was these posters that had like a c3po where his eyes were made from the sons of tattooing uh he, he did a poster of boba fett where the the uh the helmet faceplate part of boba fett i don't know what i'm not up to snuff with the whole kind of vernacular around helmets but the the shape of boba fett's pattern on his helmet was lando clarissian's space station so he he mashed those together and then he did the same thing with uh vader in a different way and those that moment that use of gestalt where you're mashing up two separate shapes in one two symbols in one creates a moment of excitement and visceral delight and it's why those posters went like wildfire online another one that i heard from oliver jeffers in a talk he did was scale so in his books you're going to see a lot of scale and i've used this principle as well after i learned it from him was that if you want to make a whale seem enormous in a tiny kid's book, you can put a really tiny person 
next to the whale. And by creating that juxtaposition of super tiny and super large on the page, you know, fill most of the page with the whale and just put a tiny speck for the person, you're going to create a sense of scale and it's going to be visceral. People are going to feel it. You would be blown away by once you know that combustion, all this stuff is going to happen to you Hopefully, when you don't know about it, there's something visceral that happens in, you know, this is one of the things you start making creative work, you actually refine your taste to where most stuff doesn't taste good anymore because it's got to be that good to really do it for you. But all this stuff, once you start seeing it, you're going to start seeing it everywhere. When you go look at kids' picture books or, or images and you see that sense of scale, you're going to notice that thing happening viscerally in you. And you're going to be surprised by how well it works because it seems so simple. But a lot of these are like that. So those are some examples of things in my utility belt that I think are scientific that create those moments for my audience. And, if, and, and when I create something, I'm always trying to employ one of these tactics to get that potent creative espresso brewing. There was a day in our multiverse where a universe split off uh, a timeline, a particular timeline split off in the story of Starbucks. And in that timeline, the one that we're living in, Starbucks is a household word. We all know what it is. And there was one particular moment where that timeline began. And it was the day that Howard Schultz realized they weren't selling coffee. Seth Godin talks about in his book, This Is Marketing, that we don't buy a drill bit. We buy the hole that the drill bit creates. That's actually like a common idea in marketing. But he said we have to go even further because nobody's buying a hole. Nobody nobody needs a hole. Like, uh, you don't buy a drill bit for a, for a hole. You buy it for a hole, and you make that hole for what you do with that. Maybe hang a shelf. And you don't hang a shelf just to hang a shelf. You might hang a shelf because you know it's going to make your significant other happy. It's gonna, they're going to like the space. They're going to be proud of what you put up on the shelf. They're going to be proud of you enhancing their space. That's what you buy when you buy a drill bit. And there was a day, there was a particular choice and a moment, a serendipity, a magic time where the universe, the timeline that we live within, where everybody knows what Starbucks is, that was born the day that Howard Schultz realized we don't sell coffee. We sell the buzz that coffee gives you. We give the, we, and we can sell the buzz of the community and the ambiance of a coffee shop. If we take these beans that we're making our customers work so hard to get what they actually want from, if we take them, if we find them, we identify them, we grind them down and we cook them with precision, we can deliver a potent, consistent offering to our audience. And today might just be the day where the universe timeline is born in which we will know you for the consistent, potent value that you show up and deliver to us our, your potential true fans. And it's my hope that today you will realize that you're not selling art, but you're selling how it works in and for your audience. And today, the timeline in which we will celebrate your creative espresso begins. It branches off from the multiverse, going into new territory that we've never seen, that you've never seen, when you realize that you're not just making art, you're making art that works. All right, friends, I hope this 
episode creates a new timeline in your multiverse. I hope that it uh, it really, uh, I hope it created some chemical combustions within you that set off totally new endeavors, totally new perspectives, and ultimately enormous breakthrough for you and your friends. If it did it for you, I hope you share it around. I hope you like me. You might listen to this thing. Oh my gosh, there's so many good things in here. I don't know if I should share this. Well, that's just your ego saying that we're not one, baby. That's just you thinking that your ship rising doesn't rise the other ones, right? Like you got to go. Come on. Share the goods. If this thing did it for you, it's going to do it for people in your life uh, too. And uh, them getting better is only going to make you rise higher too. So I hope you share it around and and, uh, and get it out there. Uh, I, I'm so pumped about this episode. I, I've been thinking about this concept, working on it, trying to figure out how to articulate it for a while. I'm excited to bring you round two. We talk about marketing in the next part of this series. Um, but until then, you know, we got to do what we got to do, the ending of the show. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for providing the rest of the soundtrack. You can listen to the Creative Pep Talk original soundtrack on Spotify and Apple Music. It makes for great work music. And actually, I created a CPT work list. It's like a playlist, but it's for work. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's that's so bad. Uh, it's ultimately a bunch of nearly instrumental music that is great for getting in the zone when you need stuff that you can't when you're working you can't have lyrics distracting you or too much singing distract you and you need to get in that flow state uh, I created a playlist it's like 25 songs or something right now and I'm going to keep adding to it for the rest of my life um, when I find perfect songs for that I've been listening to it myself and it's been really doing the trick I'm going to put it in the show notes it's a Spotify playlist and uh, so you can go check that out at creativepeptalk.com slash episodes. Thanks to all of you for listening. Until we speak again, it's my hope, honestly. I'm just one more little tidbit. I know we're running a little bit long. It's my hope that this podcast would show up consistently and in a potent way and create chemical combustions within you that get you through another week. And it's my deep belief that if I can play a part in giving you a chemical combustion that allows you to put in another brick on the wall, to put another day, another week into following your creative passions and purposes and dreams uh, that if you will stack, if I can stack enough consistent days of that, consistent weeks of that, that it will enable you to stack up enough consistent days in that and that you too will thrive. Uh, that's my hope for you. And so I hope that this satiates you for another week. I hope that it enables you to do what you got to do, which is, you know what it is, stay pepped up. Thank you.